I was warning about the 2008 financial crisis before it happened, which was the case. In fact, I was warning about it very vocally at many of the money shows that I attended leading up to that crisis. Well, I can assure everybody today that the crisis that's coming is going to be far worse than anything that was experienced in 2008. But it's going to be of a different nature and there's going to be a different outcome. Of course, the cause is the same. It's the Federal Reserve and monetary policy and to a lesser but also important extent, uh, government fiscal policy, which is helping to drive the reckless monetary policy. But I think the way it's going to play out in the financial markets is going to be a lot different. I think the, the important consideration this time around is going to be inflation. And I think inflation is the primary factor that everybody should take into consideration when trying to formulate an investment strategy, especially one that is going to uh, you know, do well in the coming decade. And you have to think of inflation not just as a monetary phenomena and not just as the effect that inflation is going to have on prices and not just consumer prices but and asset prices but you also have to think about inflation in its most basic form which is taxation inflation is really a tax i mean that's basically what it boils down to and you have to understand this because governments really have two ways of paying for their expenditures the most honest way is through current taxation. Now, obviously, that can be unpopular for the people who are paying the taxes, right? Nobody likes to send money to the U.S. government. And so when politicians are constantly running for re-election, they don't want to have to tell the voters how much all these government programs cost. Another way that government can do it, which is really the first way, just delayed, is by borrowing money. And I'm talking about borrowing it legitimately from a private lender who is willing to take money and loan it to the U.S. government by buying a U.S. Treasury bond from the government. Now, when governments do this, they're just delaying the taxation into the future because whatever money the government borrows today must be repaid tomorrow. And where is the government going to get the money to repay the bondholders, well, from the taxpayers of the future. But in the meantime, the taxpayers of today have to pay the interest on the money that's been borrowed. So in other words, when government pays for its spending programs by borrowing, the taxpayers are actually on the hook for an even greater cost. Because not only do they pay back the principal, but they have to pay all the interest. It's just like if you go out, if you want to buy a new, uh, let's say, television set, if you just buy it, uh, it's cheaper than using a credit card and then paying your monthly, your minimum payments every month. Because by the time you pay off uh, the television set, maybe you've paid two or three times the actual cost because of all the interest that you've paid over the years. Well, that's the same thing. When you pay for government programs with debt, by the time you repay the debt, the government programs were a lot more expensive than if you had just paid for them uh, with current taxation. See, now the government has to resort to a new method of finance because it is now impossible 
for the government to borrow money from private sources because it can't afford to pay a high enough interest rate to private lenders to make this a viable transaction. And that is because of the enormity of the debt that we currently have. Right? The U.S. government has borrowed so much money to try to delay the day of reckoning for so long and kick the can down the road as we've gone deeper and deeper into debt. Right now that we have a national debt that's approaching $30 trillion, right? there is no way that the U.S. government can finance that. I mean, repaying the debt is completely impossible. I mean, not with money that has any real purchasing power. But at this point, the principle of the debt is just so enormous that even if the government was forced to pay a normal rate of interest, it could not actually make those payments. So what's happening now is that the government is financing its expenditures through inflation. And the way that process works is the government issues debt and then it's the Federal Reserve that buys that debt. But when the Federal Reserve buys the debt, it has to expand the money supply to do it. See, when the U.S. government borrows from a private lender, it's taking money from one person and loaning it to another. It doesn't increase the money supply and the person who is loaning the money to the government can't also spend that money because they've loaned it to the government. And now the government gives it to somebody else to spend. But when the Federal Reserve monetizes that debt and prints new money, then it's all new spending in the economy because the government hasn't taken money away from anybody, but it's giving new money to other people. And another way to think about it is when the government taxes you to pay for its spending, it literally takes your money, right? Your money just comes right out of your paycheck. If it's an income tax, the government takes your money and then they give that money to somebody else. And now somebody else spends the money that you earn. You can't spend it because the government took it and gave it to somebody else. So your standard of living, your purchasing power is diminished because you have less money to spend. But when the government doesn't raise your taxes, if it just prints money and then gives it to that same individual to spend, your purchasing power, at least in dollar terms, hasn't been diminished. But now you have another guy or gal who is given all this cash that can now go out and spend it. And so what happens is that person competes with you to buy stuff and prices are bid higher. And so the result of that type of taxation is that prices go up. Everything becomes more expensive. So instead of the government taking your money, the government takes the purchasing power of your money. And that's a tax. And you know, if you look at what's happening now, especially since the beginning of the pandemic, government debt and money printing is off the charts. I mean, we've never experienced anything like this. In fact, I think about half of the money that the government is now spending is being printed by the Federal Reserve. So it's not really borrow and spend anymore, it's print and spend. And right now, nobody seems to think that this is a problem. People seem to think that we've stumbled on uh, the equivalent of a monetary fountain of youth. People like to call it modern monetary theory, which is we can have whatever we want as long as government prints the money to pay for it, that there's no limit, that government is free as long as they print money. Now, of course, why didn't we realize this in the past? I mean, why have we been paying taxes all these years 
if all we had to do is print money. After all, the printing press has been around for hundreds of years. Uh, and so if we could have whatever we want uh, by the magic of uh, government printing money, what's the point of all of us having to pay taxes? The reality is, is this is a fantasy that is going to end in disaster. See, there's a big difference between earning money and just having the government print it. See, when people are productive, when they have a job and they go to work and their labor is used to increase the supply of goods or services available to the public, right? You have a job, you do work, and your work either aids in the production of a good that people want or need, or you're helping to provide a service that people need. And in exchange for that help, you get money, you earn money, and now you can use that money to help buy the goods and services that you yourself help to produce, right? And the more productive you are, well, the more you earn, and therefore the greater share of what society produces, you are able to enjoy yourself. But when the government just prints money and gives it to you, when you have all these unemployed people who are sitting at home just getting a check from the government, they produced nothing. They added no goods or services to the economy, yet they can consume goods and services in the same proportions as if somebody had actually done work and actually been uh, you know, a productive member of society. So what does this do? All this does is drive up prices because if your work adds to the goods and services and now you're consuming the goods and services you help create, that's fine. But if now you start consuming goods and services, yet you didn't help create any of those goods and services, you just have more money chasing a diminished supply of goods and services and prices are going to go up. And they're going to go up like never before. And the irony of all of this is that the Federal Reserve has been promising Americans more inflation. Well, that's one promise that they're going to deliver on. In fact, they're going to deliver on it beyond their wildest expectations. And contrary to what everybody is saying, inflation is not a good thing. Inflation is not desirable. Higher inflation is not making progress. What people want is a lower cost of living. When prices go down, that's progress. And that's capitalism. That's how capitalism works. When you have real capitalism, businesses become more productive. They become more efficient. They develop economies of scale. And as they do that, the cost of production comes down. And as the cost of production goes down, demand goes up because as prices go down, more people can afford to buy more stuff. And it's falling prices that have just historically driven a rising standard of living. Well, the government has interrupted that benevolent process through inflation. And a lot of the times, you know, inflation doesn't simply make prices go up. Inflation also prevents prices from going down. And a decline in a price would have been a windfall for the consumer. When the consumer is denied that windfall by government, it's still a tax. The government is still taking your purchasing power because the goods and services that you want to consume are more expensive as a result of the government inflation. Now, of course, a lot of the inflation that government has been creating since the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of that inflation has temporarily moved into asset prices. That's the stock market, the bond market, 
the real estate market, the market for collectibles or other, other things that are you know, in short supply. And so when inflation pushes up asset prices, people don't complain because the people that own those assets, of course, feel much richer. Now, if you don't own those assets, it, obviously it's problematic if you want to buy it. For example, if housing prices keep going up and you don't own a house and you want to buy one, the fact that prices keep going up, that's not a good thing. Now, the way the government has offset that is by keeping interest rates artificially low so that people can afford to overpay for houses as the prices keep going up. But again, all of that helps distort the economy and fuel the bubble. But beneath the surface, consumer prices have been rising. The last thing the government wants is for the public to realize how much inflation there is. They certainly don't want bond investors to realize that. The key to sustaining the bubble economy, the key to sustaining massive and unsustainable government deficits in the short run is artificially low interest rates. And the Fed's only justification for keeping interest rates artificially low is the preposterous idea that there's not enough inflation. So this is all a ruse because the government is trying to justify a reckless monetary policy that is designed to protect the government, not the economy or not the people. But we're about to suffer the consequences of all this inflation in a way that's far greater than what I even imagined when I first began coming to these money shows. And a lot of that, too, has to do with what's happened during the pandemic, which is obviously not an event that I had built into my forecast, but nonetheless is simply accelerating everything that I have been forecasting and will make it worse. Because a lot of people, their initial response to the pandemic was, oh, this is deflationary, right? This means people are not going to have demand for things because they're staying at home. Well, that's true. A lot of people stayed at home and so they didn't buy as much you know airline tickets or stay in hotels but they had no problem shopping on amazon and so it wasn't that demand stopped during the pandemic it just uh, transferred money that consumers weren't spending uh, traveling they simply spent it on on other things government produces nothing government lives off the productivity of the private sector well, if the private sector is thriving, then the government can take some of those resources. But when the private sector is struggling with pressures like the pandemic, government needs to be smaller. Government needs to cut back and free up those resources back to the private sector so it can use them when it needs them. Instead, we did the opposite. We compounded the problems by increasing the toll exacted by government. And so we have more debt than ever before, more money creation than ever before, and we have created an economy that is more dependent on debt and money printing than ever before. That is why inflation is about to go through the roof. And again, think about it as a tax. The government is about to take most of what you have, not through taxation. Now they're gonna increase taxes. There's no question that the Biden administration is gonna raise taxes. And if you think otherwise, you're delusional. But the main tax that is gonna hit everybody is gonna be inflation. Especially if you're poor or middle class and you're working and all you have is your wages and those wages are gonna be dramatically diminished in value because of inflation. 
but probably more important to this audience, if you are a saver, if you are retired, or if you are nearing retirement, you are about to be decimated. Your entire life's savings is about to be taxed away by inflation. The dollar is gonna be destroyed. That's why the US dollar is already falling, despite the fact that all the experts predicted it would rise. It ended 2020 with a loss, and now it's poised for a much bigger loss. So what do you do? How do you invest in the era of inflation? Well, go back to the first decade of this century, and that will give you a playbook. You can also go back to the 1970s and see what performed well uh, during that decade. But what we're about to experience is gonna be so much worse. But if you go back to that time period, and again, you don't have to go back to the 70s, just go back to 2000 and 2010 decade, and that's when the Fed was printing all the money to uh, kind of stimulate the economy after the dot-com bubble burst and uh, what they did to try to you know, push up housing prices and then how they reacted uh, immediately to the bursting of the housing bubble. What did well? The dollar fell dramatically from 2000 to 2010. Dollar index was about 120 and it went down to about 70. Oil prices went from about $20 a barrel to 150. Gold went from under 300 to 1900. Silver went from $4 an ounce to $50 an ounce. Emerging markets just killed it. Uh, they were up four or 500%, while the US stock market went down. The first decade of this century, the S&P went down in value. Uh, and of course, the real value of US stocks was down even more if you measured them in foreign currencies or if you measured them in the price of gold. Well, the dollar is gonna be a lot weaker now uh, than it was then. I think metal prices, gold prices, other commodity prices are gonna be much stronger in this decade than they were then. And so I think the relative gains that investors will enjoy by investing in overseas markets uh, will be even greater uh, than the big gains that they enjoyed in the first decade of this century. And if you go back to the 1970s, what were the good investments of the 1970s when we had stagflation? This time it's gonna be worse stagnation and worse inflation. What happened? The Deutschmark triple, the yen triple, the Swiss franc triple. Gold went from $35 an ounce to 850. Oil went from $3 a barrel to $30 a barrel. I mean, it was huge increases in commodity prices as the dollar collapsed. The only reason the dollar stopped falling in 1980 was because we had Ronald Reagan coming in and we had Paul Volcker uh, allowing short-term interest rates to rise to 20%. We have a current Fed that can't even let interest rates rise to 2%. In fact, we can't even afford 1%, let alone 2%. That's how broke we are today compared to 1980. 1980, we were still the world's biggest creditor nation. Now we're the world's biggest debtor. Back in 1980, we still had trade surpluses. Now we have massive trade deficits. So this is gonna be a massive change. I think the dollar is gonna not just decline, but collapse. I think the next crisis is not just a financial crisis, but a dollar crisis. And so the most important thing that you could do now is to completely divest of US dollar assets. You gotta get out of US bonds in particular. Bondholders are gonna be the biggest losers as the dollar collapses because all bonds are, are promises to be paid dollars in the future. And as little as dollars buy now, they're gonna buy a lot less in the future. US stocks are way overpriced. 
uh, and their earnings are predominantly in dollars. Sure, you have multinationals that are earning foreign currencies, uh, but a lot of their earnings come from the U.S., and those earnings are A, going to decline, and B, are going to be worth less. But of course, taxes are going up. So whatever American companies end up earning, there'll be less of it available for their American shareholders because of higher corporate taxes. It's going to be foreign markets, emerging markets in particular, that are going to benefit dramatically from the declining dollar because a lot of their debts are in dollars. And basically their debts get wiped out as the dollar declines. And that is rocket fuel for their economies. So these emerging markets are going to boom. Investments that are linked to commodities are going to do extremely well. You need to own physical gold uh, as a safe haven, as a store of value. Don't get conned into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a bubble. Bitcoin isn't a safe haven. It's not a store of value. You can't store what you don't have. When you own gold, what you're doing is storing the future use of gold as a metal. People need gold. They'll always need gold. Jewelers need gold. Computer chip manufacturers, the aerospace industry, dentistry. Gold is the most useful, the most valuable metal on the planet, and it doesn't decay. But gold is to preserve your wealth. You're not going to get rich owning physical gold. You'll avoid going broke. But if you really want to get rich or you know get a lot richer, gold stocks, I believe, have enormous potential. I think some of these stocks can go up 10 times, 20 times, 50 times. So I think a lot of money is going to be made in gold stocks. Of course, there's a lot more risk in gold stocks. I mean, you know, no pain, no gain, right? You can't get big returns unless you're willing to take big risks. But I think the upside potential is enormous compared to the downside risk. So if you are a risk taker, I think these risks make a lot of sense. Good evening. These right here are Dr. Fauci, as well as his previous boss, Dr. Francis Collins. And according to a treasure trove of newly released documents that were uncovered by a nonprofit watchdog group, these two doctors, alongside other scientists over at the NIH, they have received an estimated $350 million worth of secret undisclosed royalty payments. Let me just repeat that. According to a nonprofit watchdog group called Open the Books, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Francis Collins, as well as hundreds of other scientists at the NIH, they have been paid an estimated $350 million worth of undisclosed royalties. Here's specifically what the CEO of this particular watchdog group told reporters during a teleconference. Quote, we estimate that up to $350 million in royalties from third parties were paid to NIH scientists during the fiscal years between 2010 and 2020. We draw that conclusion because in the first five years, there has been $134 million that we have been able to quantify of top-line numbers that flowed from third-party players, meaning pharmaceutical companies or other players, to NIH scientists. Now, it is worth mentioning that the numbers that they were able to get from the government was, were not as transparent as they used to be, although we will explore that a bit more in a detail. Regardless, though, According to the data that they were able to acquire, this watchdog group found that during the first five years of this time period, meaning from 2010 to 2014, this period constituted 40% of the total amount, meaning that the remaining 60% of the money that was paid out was between 2015 and 2020. Here's specifically what the president of this group said about his findings when the documents came into their possession. Quote, We now know that there are 1,675 scientists that received payments during that period, at least one payment. In fiscal year 2014, for instance, $36 million was paid 
out, and that is on average $21,100 per scientist. We also find that during this period, leadership at NIH was involved in receiving third-party payments. For instance, Francis Collins, the immediate past director of the NIH, received 14 payments. Dr. Anthony Fauci received 23 payments, and his deputy, Clifford Lane, received eight payments. Now, according to a fact sheet that was released by Open the Books, I'll show it up on screen for you, it shows that while some employees of the NIH received just a, a few dozen payments, like Dr. Fauci, who received 23, and Dr. Collins, who received 14, well, there are other scientists on the payroll who received much, much more. As you can see up on screen for yourself, you'll notice that the top five payment recipients, they received from a low of 188 payments all the way up to 271 separate payments. Now, the very next obvious question that you're likely asking is what exactly are these payments? Who's paying them and what are they for? Well, for a very simple explanation, here's how this fact sheet explains it. Quote, when an NIH employee makes a discovery in their official capacity, the NIH owns the rights to any resulting patent. These patents are then licensed for commercial use to companies that could use them to bring products to market. Employees are listed as inventors on the patents and receive a share of the royalties obtained through any licensing or technology transfer of their inventions. Essentially, taxpayer money-funded NIH research benefits researchers employed by the NIH because they are listed as patent inventors and therefore receive royalty payments from licenses. Now, specifically, what they're referring to here is what's known as the Bayh-Dole Act, which was a bipartisan piece of legislation passed back in the 1980s. Because you see, previously, meaning before the Bayh-Dole Act was signed into law, the way that scientific research was actually funded by the federal government would be that the federal government would give money to a private research institu institution, and whatever that research institution discovered, well, the government would own the patent to it. Now, the theory behind this method was that because the government would own the patent outright, all of the money earned from the patent would go right back to the taxpayers, or at least it would go back to the government agency. And so if the government wanted to either use one of their patents or sell one of their patents, well, all the proceeds would come back to the agency and theoretically at least set offset the, what the taxpayers would have to give in order to make up that agency's budget. However, that was only in theory, because back in the 1970s, this was not how it was actually happening in practice. What was actually happening was that the government wound up collecting all these different patents, and the vast majority of them were just sitting around, collecting dust, not doing anything, they were never used, and they were not making any money for the agency. And so that was the impetus for the Bayh-Dole Act to be passed back in December of 1980. And with this law in place, the way that it's worked now for the past 42 years is that an institution, like let's say Harvard, Yale, or MIT, they get a grant from the government, they use that money to find some kind of innovative piece of preliminary research, they then get a patent for the fruits of that research, and then they license it out to private companies who invest heavily in the hopes of getting one of these drugs out to market and then make, making money off it in the future. The idea here was that this new system would spur innovation. But obviously, it is not without controversy. For instance, there was a phenomenal article that was published back in the British Medical Journal and dealt with the fact that Dr. Fauci was receiving quite a bit of royalty money from his patent on AIDS medication. Here's an excerpt from this article, quote, the press agency reported that two leading researchers, Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and his deputy, Clifford Lane, received payments relating to their development of interlichen II as a treatment for HIV and AIDS. Dr. Lane told the BMJ that the payment was part of his federal compensation. He explained that the government patented the development and shared the payments it received with the inventors. Since 1997, he has received about $45,000. That's what he says. The Institute's awarded $36 
million dollars in grants for studies to test the treatment. Now, just to pause here for a quick moment, you see how it kind of works. There's a back and forth. These scientists in the NIH, they receive payments directly to themselves, to their bank accounts, but the institution as a whole, the NIH, grants money to that institution to conduct further testing and research. They granted them $36 million. However, the individual scientists got $45,000 in return. The article then continues, quote, Dr. Anthony Fauci told the British Medical Journal that as a government employee, he was required by law to put his name on the patent for the development of Interlaken II and was also required by law to receive part of the payment the government received for use of the patent. He said that he felt it was inappropriate to receive payment and donated the entire amount to charity. And so you see, there are really two ways to look at these patents, because if you're generous and you're only looking at the surface that's the stated objective of, the, of that law, then they do serve a positive purpose. They spur medical innovation. However, there are two very glaring issues. The first is the increasing lack of transparency. Because you see, during the teleconference, the president of the watchdog group opened the books. Well, he said that back in 2005, when the Associated Press was reporting extensively on this NIH royalty program, well, the government gave them access to very specific, very granular data, including which scientists were paid, exactly how much money they were paid, which companies were paying them, and what was the exact patent that they were being paid for. And so again, that was back in 2005. The data which the government was willing to give was very detailed and very, very granular. However, this year, in 2022, when Open the Books attempted to get this data from the government, well, they were not as generous. Here's specifically what the uh, president of Open the Book said on this front, quote, at that time, meaning in 2005, we knew there were 918 scientists and each year they were receiving approximately $9 million on average with each scientist receiving $9,700. But today the numbers are a lot larger with the United States still in a declared national health emergency. It's quite obvious the stakes in healthcare are a lot larger. He then went on to say that the 300 pages of line-by-line -line data which his organization actually received was heavily redacted. Here's specifically what he said, quote, These are not the files the Associated Press received in 2005 where everything was disclosed. The scientist's name, the name of the third-party payer, the amount of the royalty paid by the payer to the scientist. Today, the NIH is producing a heavily redacted database. We don't know the amount paid to the scientist, and we don't know the name of the third-party payer. All of that is being redacted. Now, it is the case that federal officials are legally allowed to redact information from these Freedom of Information Act requests if the release of that information could harm a company's commercial privilege. However, according to this watchdog, well, these undisclosed royalty payments, they contain within them an inherent conflict of interest. Here's specifically what he said, quote, We believe there is an unholy conflict of interest inherent at the NIH. Consider the fact that each year, the NIH doles out $32 billion in grants to approximately 56,000 grantees. Now, we know that over an 11-year period, there is going to be approximately $350 million flowing the other way from the third-party payers, many of which receive the NIH grants, and those payments are flowing back to NIH scientists and leadership, meaning that the individuals within the NIH are receiving fairly large amounts of money from these specific companies and institutions, the same companies and institutions that in return get billions of grant money from the NIH. And so you can look at this as either a system of great capitalistic scientific development or as kind of a one hand washes the other government collusion with Big Pharma. And the problem is that if we don't have access to the actual information, well, we don't have enough data to know whether there's any actual conflicts of interest. Here's again what the watchdog president said on this front, quote, if they are not, none of these payments are receiving any scrutiny whatsoever and to the extent that a company making payments to either leadership or scientists while also receiving grants, then that just on its face is a conflict of interest. And so in order to resolve this dilemma, what Open the Books did was that they filed a new Freedom of Information Act request for all documentation of all payments of outside firms to either the NIH or to any of their employees. 
However, the NIH declined to respond to this new Freedom of Information Act request, and so now Open the Books is in the process of taking the agency to court in order for them to release all of their data, which quite frankly is more relevant now than ever given the fact that millions of Americans across the entire country had vaccine mandates pushed upon them. If you'd like to read more about this $350 million worth of secret payments made to employees over at the NIH, I'll throw the links to this research into the description box below this video for you to check out. And all I ask in return is that you take a super quick moment to smash that like button for the YouTube algorithm. And also, if you haven't already, smash that subscribe button so that way you can get honest access to all of our news coverage every single weekday right onto your YouTube feed. And now, while I was down in Texas about two weeks ago, I got a phenomenal opportunity to sit down and speak with Dr. Paul Alexander, who is a former health and human services advisor under President Trump. Now, Dr. Alexander explained to us how, at least from his perspective, the forces within the federal government, including over at the CDC, were working overtime to undermine the Trump administration prior to the 2020 election. Now, if you want to check out that interview in its glorious entirety, you can do so over on Epic TV. I'll throw a link to it. It'll be right there at the very top of the description box. I hope you click on it, and I hope you watch that interview because frankly it was very enlightening and very revealing after I had a chance to sit down and speak with him for about 20 or 30 minutes. Again, that link will be right there at the very top of the description box. And then until next time, I'm your host, Roman from the Epic Times. Stay informed and stay free. Excited? Are you excited? I'm looking forward to this, man. What do you want to do? Show me something. Come here, man. So I hate to be the bearer of bad oh, news. Come on, man. What's your plan here? Look, this is not. But that. They, you knew she was 13. No, I didn't. Well, I've got the transcript right here. Uh, <laughs> so this is funny. You know, I, I get all this information about. Instead of taking responsibility, he tries to blame it all on the decoy. I was prepared for them to come after me, but I wasn't prepared for the person coming at me the way she came at. She knew Bo. She knows me. I don't. Anyway, it I, sounds like what you're trying to see is if you could score with a 13-year-old girl. It's not about that. But you did bring some things with you today. Well... <laughs> so you brought condoms. That's a different issue. It doesn't seem so tonight. Look, every child out there, every child out there is capable... There's something i got to tell you. I'm Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC. Come on, man.